Hello out there. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods, explorers discovering nothing but destitution, true crime calamity, oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. Subscribe to Maroon wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> Hello. Out there. Keeping a secret can be hard. And I don't mean in the childish way where it's like holding a pee, desperate not to spill it finally given in by asking another if they can keep it because we obviously can't and what a relief to empty ourselves of a secret a bladder full of beans can buy the center of attention at the cost of integrity don't get me wrong I'm not on a high horse we all do it secret sharing is a sport gossip is the glue of community but that's easy gossip that's human gossip Rumor. When I say keeping a secret can be hard, I'm talking about the dark and personal packages collected over a lifetime. The ones hidden deep in the hopes that even God cannot find them when it's time for the truth. Truth that for some will not set them free. Rather, lead to imprisonment. Hell. Secrets that eat the soul. If you have one, welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening, one way or another. Texarkana, Arkansas. Carmichael Hill. A worn-out, rural, faded-looking spot typical of small-town Texas or Arkansas. Texarkana, 501, Baden Street, the Arkansas side. It's tough to tell from the wilting Polaroid photo what color the little house is. I think it's blue. The old station wagon out front is maybe cream. The officers are clearly from the era. Notepads, cigarettes, and too tight uniforms, or just right uniforms, depending on how you swing. And if it ain't the right way in these parts, it'll be from a tree. It's the early 80s, April of 81, and the so-called town that dreaded sundown, thanks to the horror flick of that same name based on Texarkana, is once again waking up to a nightmare. Known for the moonlight murders, a period of 10 weeks where the mysterious phantom killer from February to May of 1946 had terrorized Texarkana, disguised by a simple white pillowcase with holes for eyes. And there's something so scary about that, the simplicity, the crudeness of the costume. He'd accost couples in lover's lanes and take the girl for himself. 
multiple brutal cuckold situations, some ending in death by beating, then gun. Lover's Lane attacks, as close to romantic as this shit gets, especially from that era, post-World War II, when innocence was returning, only to be nipped in the bud. For the Texarkana Moonlight murders, I can't do justice, nor could authorities. I'll share of the phantom that he was blamed for one home invasion on the Texas side of Texarkana, shooting through windows at a couple, standing outside in the dark with a pillowcase over his head, chasing the woman of the house around in a wild scene that literally became the stuff of a horror film, though many believe that incident to have been a copycat phantom, a scary place with a scary history, a strange town in a strange spot, bisected by the Texas-Arkansas border, Texarkana, a Frankenstein of a name I'm fucking tired of butchering, probably. Monsters are strolling in from all angles in this tale. The still-unknown phantom killer, back from the mid-40s, left some victims traumatized, most shot to death. The storied area was no stranger to strange, and knew all too well that some secrets stayed secret because the one who held them held them alone. That's more of a burden than a secret. At least you'd hope so for the ones who hold on to the truth of such things. Like what's in the house we came to see. On the Arkansas side, this is a dark topic coal, but the shit is warming up. I was working on this one for a little while. And now it's become something I can release fully cooked like me. Over fucking done is what I am. Henry Lee Lucas stands out front of this house we're here to see. Three years and a couple weeks past the initial photograph I'm working off of from 1981. The faded photo of the maybe blue house with the cream-colored station wagon slumped on a dirt driveway. The now haunted home hiding in rather than enjoying its location back from the road a bit where the trees shiver as the confession killer Henry Lee Lucas is led to look at 501 Baden. Now deserted. Yep, I climbed in a window there, cut they throats wide open, boss. Henry Lee Lucas is known by many names. The one-eyed drifter being one of them. That's because he's missing an eye. Stemming from an incident in childhood where his brother slashed him and his mother, whom he'd later kill, didn't bother sending Henry Lee Lucas to the doctor, a teacher whom couldn't stand looking at the infected, bulging thing oozing from young Henry's socket. He swiped it with a steel-tipped ruler, bursting the eye, where after it was removed at hospital, like one of the victims from the house today, Henry, did you know that? Of course I know that, boss. Left eye, too. Left eye. Left eye like my own eye. No, 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 no. It was, it was the right eye, Henry. Well, left eye to me from my striking point with my screwdriver back then. It was a butter knife. Henry Lee Lucas. It was a butter knife, remember? I don't need no butter knife, chief. This is a damn hamburger. No, I mean, a butter knife was used, Henry. Henry, we're recording this, you know? Like, fucking get it together. Never mind. You know, eat up. Henry Lee Lucas goes back to his meal in front of these Texas Rangers, slurping a strawberry shake at the local Texarkana diner to the murder house. He smokes when finished. A Texas Ranger lights him up, 
This after maybe his 500th confession to a crime he couldn't possibly have committed, the details being fed to him like these cross-country meals and cigarettes. If you're not familiar with the serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas and his boyfriend, Honest Tool, you should check him out. They're a cute couple. I won't touch it more than I have to, because Lord only knows where it's been, what's true or not. For our purposes, it needs to be said that Henry Lee Lucas was here. Though certainly not the time this episode's crime occurred. He was in Florida with Otis. Yeah, I'm not mispronouncing that. It's not Otis, okay? Chill. It's Otis. Collecting food stamps, they were, in Florida, then eating beans off of one another with their baked bean teeth. I see it that way, you know, like that they used to get food stamps and they used to buy beans and then they get sexual and they'd crank them open with their baked bean teeth. And then they'd dump the beans on each other and make love. That's, that's how I see these two doing it. The ugliest couple in true crime history. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. April 8th, 1981. 7.15 a.m. or thereabouts. Weldon Alexander a soft-spoken 47-year-old husband and father, has just completed his graveyard shift at the Cooper Tire and Rubber Plant. He parks his cream-colored station wagon out front of his worn-out Texarkana home, dust swirling from the dirt driveway as he exits. His house at 501 Baden seems embarrassed, trees covering its eyes, trunks bent as if at the elbows. A spooky place this morning. The light isn't right and neither is that front door being wide open, like a mouth, screen door slamming in the wind. This place, for forty years beyond, will keep its mouth shut. Weldon reluctantly enters his home. His daughter, fourteen-year-old Karen, always had unlocked the door around 6.30 a.m. in anticipation of his return, never leaving it open, like this fool business. She should be making breakfast, but the house is quiet. It has that eerie stillness all formerly lived-in places do. This is a fucking nightmare. Weldon maybe expects his wife to greet him. That would confirm it. Cigarette hanging from her mouth, hospital gown flowing out like a tattered wraith serving her soulless shell to him. This is your life, Weldon Alexander. What's left of it? Vera, his wife, should be here. But she's nuts. Locked away in the asylum three days previous, and that's the truth. Something difficult to find in this story. Also the truth is that inside, he finds his children dead. 14-year-old Karen Alexander. Bespectacled, dark reddish hair, sweet, demure, helpful. She'd taken care of mom as much as she could, and dad. Had the mother escaped the asylum and come to slaughter her kids? Rumors swirl, as nothing is too far-fetched in Texarkana. The girl was trying to keep things together, as everything fell apart. Her younger brother, 13-year-old Gordon, charming, boisterous, despite having gone through heart surgery as a child that caused a stroke, which limited use of his left side. He was not at all shy like his sister or mother. He was a fighter, bullied for his limp and corrective footwear, a clunky black shoe that earned him the nickname of Herman Munster. Gordon never gave in. He was bound to a wheelchair at the time of his death. He'd hurt his hip in a bicycle accident. Funny thing is, uh, Dad's nickname was Hip for some fucking reason. 
Legend has it that the sounds of that wheelchair, that Gordon, 13-year-old Gordon lying dead in here that we'll get to, the sounds of that wheelchair rolling around the home will scare off future renters of the murder house on Baden. The Alexanders have been renting as well at the time, but after this, they leave. Well, mum and dad won't return, but the house will allegedly hold the fear from this night and potentially the restless spirits of Karen and Gordon. The energy of this home scaring off tenant after tenant until the house is torn down years later. And what is all this? What the fuck am I talking about? I don't know. I didn't know. Nobody knew until recently. I'll tell you what the father of this situation, Weldon Andrews, came home to. And we'll find our way from there. How about? He discovered his daughter in her bedroom. Autopsy would later uncover that she'd been raped, though Karen is fully clothed, not in her pajamas, which she should be. This is odd. Dad had last seen her around 10.30 the previous night. He could have sworn she was in her PJs. But that's the least concerning oddity here. The 14-year-old has been beaten, stabbed, and slashed. Six stabs to the head, six to the throat. By some reports, a butcher knife has been stabbed six inches into her eye. Six, six, six. Her throat is slit. The back of her head has been bludgeoned. Her father decides to remove the knife. It's not clear to me if this is a butter knife from the eye or a kitchen knife protruding from the top of her head. I've found conflicting reports. I know she was definitely stabbed in the eye. I know definitely the father pulled the knife out of her head. Neither one is fucking disturbing as hell. But once he pulls the knife out of his daughter's head, the young woman begins muttering incoherently. Karen is still alive, muttering with all these fucking holes in her head and her chest and a big slash wound in her neck. She's been alive all night long, maybe, like this, after having been raped. Her father realizes all this as he rushes to the house phone, holding the murder weapon in his hand, effectively fucking up all the fingerprints on it. And at this point, he finds his son's wheelchair toppled over in the living room. The father begins calling out for Gordon, his 13-year-old son, and soon finds him in a crumpled heap in the kitchen. The 13-year-old is white with death. The pool of blood he lays in and the splashes around the house tell the story of his fight. He had tried to protect his sister before being beaten, then stabbed to death with the nearest weapon, the same dull butter knife his father now drops on the counter or picks up again. I don't know. Or or he pulled a fucking knife out of the top of his little girl's head. It's a brutal fucking crime that I'm a little bit confused about, if you couldn't tell. So this butter knife was bent from its cruel use. His son, his throat, is slashed from ear to ear. A detail Henry Lucas had picked up from crime scene photos he'd been exposed to pre-confession. The boy has been stabbed over a dozen times in the face, neck, and chest. A brutal fucking crime. Unlike his sister, Gordon Alexander is long gone, at least for the eight and a half hours since dad left for work for that graveyard shift. Weldon, the father, calls the police station. Not 911 like people say. I don't think they had it in 81, did they? Boop, boop, boop. Boop, 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 boop. Hey, uh, get the fuck over here. And the rest 
is history. Sorry if I sound like a fucking asshole delivering this. I've just been living with it for a little while. Evidence is collected and stored away. An investigation goes on for 40 years. The mother, who's in uh, what they call the nut house, Vera, would speak up only once, saying this, quote, I think they're in a better place than we are now, but the way they went is no way for anybody to go, end quote. And I failed to mention that 14-year-old Karen died of her head wounds, a brain injury, three days after the attack. She died in hospital while her mom was seizuring every other day upon hearing the news. Her mom was having grand mal seizures every other day. Normally it was every three months or something, every other day. And uh, her daughter's in there dying of head wounds. Um, she visited her. Her father's visiting her. Others are visiting her. Uh, who knows? Maybe the killer visited her. Who knows? I do, because uh, I'm way ahead of you. So this suddenly childless mother would shoot herself dead in the head three years after the murders, that in 1984. Around the same time, Henry Lee Lucas, the confession killer, is licking his fingers at the local diner after casually admitting to this mess. One he only mucked up further for a time in exchange for travel, conversation, notoriety, cigarettes, milkshakes, and cheeseburgers, phone calls with his boyfriend, Otis Tool. The butter knife murders over the next four decades become just more Texarkana lore. Police Captain Jimmy Court spoke on this shocking crime at the time, quote, All days off have been canceled. We will work full time until the case is solved. The person who did this is an animal. We hope the courts will treat them as they would a mad dog. End quote. So Henry Lee Lucas, if you you gotta know who he is. There's a Netflix special, fucking everything else, the I don't know, true crime that you've you've absorbed over the last decade, you know? We we've been inundated with this shit. Henry Lee Lucas, very famous serial killer. Besides him, there were a few other potential suspects. The mother was looked at briefly. But she hadn't escaped the asylum that night. Dad was at work and was widely viewed as a victim himself in this. He died in 2014 at the age of 80, having since moved on, remarrying and fathering another son and daughter. The Alzheimer's in the end stole away any lasting memory of uh, Hip's life. That's what he was known as, Hip. Like his son's broken hip at the time that he was dragged out of his wheelchair and brutally fucking murdered after his sister was raped and later on murdered and had to lay there alive with a knife sticking out of her head. The father couldn't remember any of this, which maybe was a mercy. There were a few more false confessors. Some drunk at a bar briefly took credit, and a mentally ill man would put his hand up before being helped to lower it. Texarkana was accustomed to chasing phantoms like the phantom killer, remember? Neighbors claimed to have seen a blue Chevy pickup truck leave the Alexander property in a hurry that night after having sat in the dirt driveway between 3 and 6 a.m., so not night, like, you know, middle of the fucking night, worst time of the night, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This was a big lead, neighbors claiming to have seen this truck just idling in the driveway. You'd think it'd be fucking humongous, right? I mean, like, oh, my God, whoever did this was driving this blue 70s model Chevy, which had a missing tailgate, a gun rack, and a sticker on the back window saying something about cowboys. 
What were they? Did they have binoculars? This house wasn't just like, you know, this was in the suburbs. This was out in kind of a rural area, very private, dirt driveway going up to it. Neighbors, I don't know, through the trees. With this lead, the thought became that a visitor or visitors had invaded the home in the wee hours, likely to assault 14-year-old Karen Alexander. The brother and sister must have dressed in the street clothes from their pajamas with the visit. Then the attack began. The use of a butter knife was unusual, a blunt weapon of little menace, until thrust into what were basically children's bodies with brute force. The choice of weapon revealed a spontaneous aspect to the crime. The brother was likely dragged from his wheelchair and beaten, stabbed, then had his throat slit while defending his sister from this attack from someone or ones they were probably familiar with. Karen was found clothed. There was evidence of her having been involved in sexual activity, however. The coroner deduced that the shy 14-year-old had been sexually active or assaulted multiple times in the 72 hours leading to her death. S.A., they call it now, but I'll say, you know, sexually assaulted is what they, they thought that was possible um, as well here. Raped. Semen stains in the bed sheets were not initially recovered as evidence, though the bed sheets themselves were. They would not be tested until just recently. This cold case will thaw. It just needed one of the initial officers, Calvin Seward, who eventually became a captain. Uh, it also needed a Facebook group, which you'll find the sources, which was heavily involved here. And a one Dr. Steffi, also a DNA specialist named Kelly Dixon, among other unsung heroes of this story. They just needed this. This, this case needed these people to keep chipping away at the ice until the killer was revealed just this past early October of 2023. It's incredible, an incredible story um, that, I, I, again, I was working on something around this, um, but then this popped as, as being solved. This dark topic, cold thought, and um, I was about to say I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I mean, I was just really excited to share it with everybody. It's, it's an incredible story. And uh, please don't take my enthusiasm for anything other than uh, just being excited to share it and happy for um, a resolution of the case. I, I don't love uh, what's going on here at all. I don't. I really don't. I said that like I do, I, and I was being, uh, I don't. So somebody claimed they saw young Karen talking to a man at the local laundromat, a tall, skinny cowboy with a hook nose, clean shave, black and white snakeskin boots, a brown Western-style hat pulled, though. This in the days or the weeks before her murder and her brother's murder, while their father was at work and their mother was in a psych hospital. But they, the police, the investigators, never could find this fella or the blue Chevy with the cowboy sticker. And that was because they never really existed. People just want to help is what we tell ourselves. Personally, I think people just want a bag of beans to spill. It's called stirring the pot. And if there's no beans to cook, they'll find a cowboy that cook his up. Just to raise a stink. And that's a fart joke. Hold on to your butts. Here's what really happened. All right, everybody. Zippix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zippix nicotine toothpicks. 
Zippix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zippix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zippix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. When the retired detective Calvin Seward was finally granted permission to reopen the Alexander murder file in 2022, it didn't take long to find the semen on Karen's sheets and test it, along with scraping from under the fingernails of both kids. The shavings had brass, copper, and zinc in them, as well as blood. The blood was a match to a close family member. The semen was too. The brass, copper, and zinc were from an employee, likely, of the Cooper Tire Plant. This was all directly related, of course, to the father, Weldon Alexander. Had you figured that out yet, that he did it? Because nobody else did. For 40 fucking years in shame. He'd been molesting his sweet, shy daughter, doting Karen, who only wanted the world to be right. But when mom went to the nut house, that's what they called it. 
The same people who called Gordon Herman Munster when mom went to the loony bin. It's not on me, that's on just the times. Dad had ramped things up at that point. And when I say ramp things up, I mean pushed the sexual abuse onto his daughter uh, from molestation to rape is what they think, investigators think. And Gordon must have caught him on about the third day since mom was taken away. Then caught a few shots to the head when he spoke up from his wheelchair. Heroically, by the way. Gordon is a hero in this. Then Gordon was dragged from his wheelchair by dad and beaten in the back of the head more and then stabbed to death with the first thing he could grab, which was a butter knife off the table. Dad was strong. Dad's a factory worker. And he's just bludgeoning his son with a fucking butter knife before slitting his throat with a kitchen knife. Ear to ear, after a ferocious fight with his son. There was a screwdriver involved at some point, too, I've read. Karen likely saw the whole thing, and her father, Weldon Alexander, couldn't have that, couldn't have her knowing that uh, he just killed her brother, so maybe he raped her one more time before work. This was around 7.30 p.m., possibly. That's why the kids weren't in their pajamas. They didn't dress back into their street clothes because someone visited. No, they just were both attacked by their father earlier uh, than uh, the narrative would suggest for the last 40 years. And then dad beat Karen over the back of her head before stabbing her too with the butter knife a bunch of times in the chest, neck, face, once deep into the right eye, six inches before slashing her throat as well, ear to ear. Then, by some accounts, slamming a kitchen knife into the top of the little girl's head before taking a shower. Then leaving for his graveyard shift, leaving the door open behind him. When he got home, after his shift, where nobody noticed anything different about the man, he realized Karen was still breathing, so he pulled out the knife, explaining his prints on the murder weapon, And then he touched as much of everything as he could in an apparent tizzy, grabbing his son from the kitchen floor and screaming his name to the ceiling before calling for help. Weldon Alexander kept that secret for the rest of his life, doing interviews where he'd soak up sympathy, cashing in on pity until he died an old man, unable even to recall his secret by that point in 2014. This crime happened in 1981. I was born in 1980. This guy lived almost my entire life, well, my entire lifetime up until uh, I was, do your fucking math, 33 years old. My 33-year-old lifetime, this guy lived with that secret. No problem. And uh, he was thought of as incredibly resilient and remarkable by his friends and fresh family, following his wife's suicide and the brutal murders of his children. But, uh, you know, now we know. And they say it's a shame that the truth came late. But in such things, as the small ghost story I told of the restless souls that forced the little blue house on Baden to be torn down, suggests, the truth is never late, only waiting to be revealed, one way or another. And that will do it. That bastard. 
Hard to have an episode with mention of the afterlife and God. I would have gone further with my paranormal, you know, fucking feelings about what happened to the house and the reason it was pulled. I was like, fucking forget it. There's enough going on with the story here. Hard to have an episode with mention of such things. Then reveal that this guy just got away with it and went on his merry way, celebrated through his long life, gifted with a new wife and a new boy and a new girl. Proof that there's no goddamn way that God gives a damn about the details. But there's something out there. And I do get the strong sense that it cares a great deal about the truth. So I'm going to quit lying to myself and smoke this cigarette that's looking at me. It's just been fucking sitting here. I'm one of these idiots who thinks that I could tempt myself with such things and uh, it'll be like a strength. Oh yeah, fuck, I'll never do that again. Mm. Whatever. I'm smoking this stale piece of shit. Anyways, check out my new podcast with Aaron from Generation Y. That's right, I'm a big deal that deals with big boys, preferably bald. Check out Maroon, Stories of the Catastrophically Lost, wherever you listen. That's Marooned. Check it out. You might you might like it better than this. I don't. I, I like this better, but see what you think. Until next time. I like them all. Fuck. Until, until next time. Keep those eyes cocked. Those doors locked. And stay paranoid.